0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Is Hamilton doing enough to combat hate? How big a problem is congestion on Hamilton Mountain? And what can be done about it? Also, climate change is now one of the top ballot box issues in this election, and we're joined by Environment Minister Catherine McKenna to discuss that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about something that has been a topic on this program many times, and that's the... The concern about Hamilton and hate crimes. Uh, just the other day, of course, we had yet another story of, uh, of uh, anti-Semitism uh, with uh, spray paint and graffiti, illegal graffiti, of course. Uh, and that's only the tip of the iceberg, of course. Uh, we've been talking about a number of different hate crimes. And uh, it's, uh, it's certainly a black mark on the city's reputation that uh, three of the last five years— uh, we have had uh, more hate crimes per capita than any other city in the, in this country, and, and that's not something to be proud of, certainly. So what's going on? Why is this happening, and what are we going to do about this? Well, uh, that's obviously a discussion that's, that is is going to be going on and has been going on at City Hall and in many other circles, including a number of community groups. Uh, and we we've got to obviously do something about not just the reputation, but for the safety of people. Joining us to talk about the the problem and hopefully to maybe point us in the way of some solutions is uh, Cameron Croach, who is, uh, of course, a member of the uh, Pride Hamilton Board of Directors and has been very vocal uh, about some of these uh, incidents that have happened. Cameron, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today.
1: Thanks,
0: Bill. Thanks for having me on. Well, listen, I I wish it would under better circumstances, but here we go again. I know this is a story, CBC has done a story about what's been happening here in Hamilton, and uh, obviously there are some some severe issues about what's going on. Uh, as, As you and I talked about, the focus of this whole thing started probably with Pride Week and the incident that happened at Gage Park. But I think as you articulated to us a couple of weeks ago when you were on the program, uh, that wasn't the beginning of it. It just kind of shone the light on what had been going on for quite some time.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. It it has been going on for quite some time. There have been some more things happening lately. And you touched on those. um, Some anti-Semitic things that happened over the weekend with flasticas and other kinds of hateful uh, imagery and languages at the... The synagogue and people you know having their pictures taken in a threatening way in the mosques and so this is an issue that's affecting everyone in Hamilton it's affecting all kinds of marginalized communities and it's something that's continuing to go on as you pointed out
0: this look at this is our city this is you know this is where we live this is where we raise our families where we where we work, love, play, etc Why is it happening in our city
1: that's a good question and and you're touching on something that I think is causing a lot of dissonance for people. When I'm reading remarks from our leaders in our city, I'm seeing a lot of folks saying things like, you know, uh, I don't believe that Hamilton is a place where this is happening. Um, This is a diverse city and a welcoming place. And I think that what for for some folks are realizing is that that's not the case for everybody. That hasn't been the case for everybody. And that might mean that uh, in order to find out how those communities, how marginalized marginalized communities are impacted, um, some people are going to have to get closer to them, are going to have to find out how they're impacted, and have to listen to them. Um, there was a O show Laura Babcock did, and Kojo Dante was on the show. Mm-hmm. Kojo made a really great point about saying, that I want to echo here, about saying that you know going out and talking to the people who are most affected by this, then listening to what they have to say, and then Taking that advice and implementing it, and that's what needs to be done here.
0: Where where did the communication break down, or, or maybe more to the point, Cameron, was there ever any direct communication line um, with who? Sorry, with any one of these affected groups?
1: Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think that the communication has to come from a different place. Um, in that the article that the CBC wrote, um, you know, the kind of the comments coming from leadership in that and city leadership in those. In those articles like the mayor and the police chief and those kinds of folks are are pushing are pushing things away and are defensive um so things like you know saying things like i know in my heart that this is a welcoming diverse city i don't think people are saying that they think hamilton is bad in terms of as as a city um i think that saying things like that though pushes the problem away and that's not how you have a conversation by basically saying this isn't a big deal um that's the kind, of, the kind of flavor that is being presented right now when um, you act like it's not a big deal or it's something that people are blowing out of proportion or that it's not affecting everyone or that, by and large, people are accepting and welcoming. I don't think that's being uh, disputed here, but there's still a problem. And if you're not willing to tackle that problem by really having a dialogue that's genuine and l- really listening truly to what people are saying to you, then it's not going to go anywhere.
0: Cameron, I've seen some of those comments, uh, well, really since last summer when when this really started to get pushed onto the front burner, I guess. And, and you're right. I mean, I saw some some posts that basically said, look, this is no big deal. These guys are just blowing this out of proportion. This is their 15 minutes of fame. Uh, I, I'd like to think that we're better educated about the problem and, and, and the concerns right now, but are you still hearing that kind of feedback?
1: Definitely. I think that people are still saying it. I mean, the article that was put up by CBC today, you had the police chief saying, you know, these things are happening not only here, but across the country. That's a a tactic to deflect and to try and make it seem like, well, this isn't really a unique problem to Hamilton. Uh, It's a unique problem everywhere. And so, you know, our role in in solving that problem is really limited to what everybody else is doing. And I think there's a really big phrase that's being used and has been used. I think I might have even used it, and I regret that, which is that these are complex issues, Are they complex issues, Bill? Um, That's something I've been thinking a lot about. I don't think they're as complex as we want them to be. Are they difficult for people who are in positions of authority and power to have to kind of give away some of that power or have to apologize or have to, you know, um, meet groups where they're at, which is a change for them? Yes, that's difficult work. But I don't think that it means it's so complex. And when we use that kind of language to describe it, it kind of lets people off the hook, right? Like, this is such a complex issue that the average person can't do anything about it, or it's such a complex issue that we don't know what to do about it, it's it's too much. It's a lot, but I don't think it's so complex that people can't be involved, can't figure out ways to uh, be involved in this and help and find solutions.
0: Well, and and we've talked about some of the extraneous factors in this, and and some of the they are legitimate. I mean, there obviously has been a rise in the alt right movement, and and I probably think there is an argument to be made that, that it's being emboldened to a certain extent by uh, the the guy in the White House, uh, but, but and others uh, in the political movement who seem to have gravitated to that because it's starting to happen in our country too. But you can't just throw your hands up and say, well, it's just too large for us to look after here. I mean, the, it, it may be a national, it may be an international problem. In fact, we prob- it is an international problem. We get that. But what are we doing about it here in this community? I think that's the question we need to answer.
1: It's definitely the question we need to answer. and I think we've seen lots of other communities around the world implement policies and protocols. What we seem to be doing here is um, waiting around for the least risky way to deal with it. And I get that for politicians and other kinds of political leaders, um, there's, there's certain things they're not willing to say and do in public. But that's the thing I think that we should be focusing on here: is the difference between politicians and leaders, and politics and leadership. And what the city needs and what the city's in a crisis of is leadership at this point. And we don't have, uh, have folks in those positions who are willing to be really public um, about what they think and what they're going to do, and aren't willing to be concrete about the actions they're willing to take. So um, we have them kind of having these conversations around the council table or those other kinds of committee meetings, as you know, um, conversations which which are observed by very few, rather than finding a way to reach out and talk to as many people about this as possible. And again, I don't think those conversations are going to be easy. I've certainly done a lot of learning myself uh, through this this whole situation and, reach out to groups that I wasn't necessarily close to um, to try and have conversations and figure out, you know, what what am I doing wrong and how, how am I maybe contributing to issues? We all have to do that. If we're not ready to do it, if we're not prepared to do it, this is going to continue to get worse. So I do see a lot of face-saving going on and other kinds of political deflection, um, a lot of silence, and I will continue to say, Bill, that to me, um, above all, that is the most harmful thing that's happening here is that the majority of people... On our council, majority of people in those kinds of leadership positions have either said so little as to as, about this that it's impossible to even hear what they're saying or have said nothing at all.
0: Well, maybe what we better do here, and, and I know you've attempted to do this and other members of the community, it's not just the LBGT community as well, because there are other groups. Uh, we mentioned anti-Semitism and so many other groups that have come forward now and say, yeah, yeah we feel this too. This is not as as i've seen some people try to characterize this that you're offended there, there's another word that gets overused all too often and oftentimes in the, in the wrong context. This is not about your your you know your tender sensibilities there's a number of people a larger number of people than we probably even imagined in this community that don't feel safe and and that's that's really. The, the issue that needs to be dealt with here. We have people that are afraid to walk down the street. There are people that are afraid to go downtown. We have people that don't feel as if they can actually walk around and, and do the things they want to do in this community. And that should that should get the attention of every elected official, every every person of authority in this community. I mean, if we have a city that's not safe, then we got a major problem here.
1: It's true, and I think that more and more people are feeling unsafe as time goes by. I'm still struck by comments i know i've heard um, reported and other kinds of comments made by folks who just don't feel like comfortable going down or near their city hall on a saturday and that sticks with me because that's supposed to be a place where everyone feels safe is going to your main center of civic space right city hall and people don't feel safe going down there or going by there at all on a saturday so yeah we have to think about what our duty is to ensure that people do feel safe, but i but I say increasingly, I think people feel less safe and less safe and less safe. I mean, I know myself over the weekend, certainly had a lot of reflective moments about my own safety, about the safety of others I was with. And uh, this this can't continue to go on bill without something um, more happening. and i I wonder what it will take to happen. and that scares me because I think that. Um, as time has gone on, there's been a, a spotlight shone on this because maybe of what happened at Pride and because of the attention that got. But this issue has been going on for a really long time. And do we need to have another, you know, Hindu Samaj temple uh, incident? Do we need to have other kinds of incidents like that to happen for the city to, to take this more seriously? Um, I think that it's great to say we're working on a provision to ban people from the forecourt of City Hall But that's a kind of legalistic uh, attempt to deal with this. It's a very risk-averse measure. Uh, The question that I continue to come back to and that I challenged the police chief during that meeting was, I'm hearing a lot about what your limitations are. I'm hearing a lot about what people can't do. I'm seeing a lot of what politicians are saying they're not able to do. What can they do? What are they doing? What will they do? Sometimes being in uh, these situations requires a bit of strength a bit of bravery a demonstration of of leadership and I think that you have to sometimes take a little bit of a leap outside your comfort zone and to be uncomfortable and I think that if you're in a leadership position and you're not uncomfortable, you're doing it wrong
0: well and if anybody at City Hall and I'm talking about the elected officials and and administrators, uh, think that this is a problem that's centric to the City Hall forecourt. They're sadly mistaken. They haven't been paying attention. Because uh, it, it, it goes well beyond that. And and you know that. I mean, you've experienced it. You've told me some of those stories. I've heard it from others, too. Anecdotally, people have reached out to me. There was an assault just up at Lime Ridge Mall the other day. A, a man and a woman were assaulted in a parking lot. Uh, was race a factor? Could have been. Uh, the terrible tragedy that happened in the East End at Winston Churchill. We well, Now, we don't know all the factors involved in that. But... <laughs> The you know how many alarm bells do you have to have going off at the same time and and your your comparison with the the Samaj Temple I think is well taken I mean yes the the tragedy of nine eleven was one thing but the way that some people responded the fire at the at the the temple and of course at the mosque up on the mountain it did bring this community together we sat down and talked to each other probably for the first time in many many years and and we did start to make those connections I'm not so sure if we have those connections anymore.
1: Well, I think that the problem with making connections based on reactivity is that's the result, right? Like, once you're responding to something that's happening or reacting to something that's happening, and out of that then creating something, yes, it can be very positive and it can be a way to bring people together. If you're not willing to do the work in between those incidents and between those kinds of things that happen to sustain those relationships, they don't last. And that's what I'm seeing here. And I find a kind of cavalier attitude by a lot of people about this. Um, they're shrugging their shoulders and saying, it doesn't impact me, doesn't affect me, they're saying they don't see it. And I would encourage anyone who feels like they're not seeing this hate or they're not seeing these issues to ask themselves how close they are to people in marginalized communities who are most affected by them. If they're not close, ask themselves, how can they get closer? How can they find out more about what's happening? What can they do? In um, what ways can they participate and see these things? And how do we believe other people? How do we trust in what other people are saying? Because at some point we have to be able to do that. I believe the people who tell me the stories they've experienced hate uh, in the city and experienced violence in the city. And I think more of us have to take that tack here and to take their word for it and to take people's um, experiences for what they are and take this seriously.
0: Well, and I, and again, I know that <clears throat> we've heard all the other you know socioeconomic factors and poverty, and, and those are factors, I get that uh... but that's that's for levels of government to look at we have to talk about public safety right here on our streets and uh... that's only going to happen if we have people that are, are sincere about the, their efforts to try to do something about this uh... we're going to keep talking about it and i know you certainly will too cameron and uh, we will uh, certainly give you a platform uh, thanks again for this today really appreciate the time
1: if i could squeeze one more thing in bill if you don't mind um... i'd like to just say that i think that one thing that's not getting attention here in the situation and it's drawn to my mind because it's, uh... on the cover of the cbc article is the rainbow crosswalk? And I just want to say that I think that there is a lot of low-hanging fruit out there like that, um, where we see that kind of, you know, scarred, um, rubber-marked um, as an emblem of, uh, a symbol of the city's understanding of how it relates to Two-Spirit and LGBTQ folks. And I think those kinds of things can be can be can be remedied quickly. And so I think I hope that. Um, we see these symbolic gestures, um, and we do something about them.
0: Absolutely. Uh, here, here, that's a great point to end this one on. Thanks again, Cameron. We'll stay in touch. Thanks, Bill. Cameron Coach, uh, concerned citizen, of course, uh, as, as we all should be to deal with this problem. You're listening to the Bill Kelly show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk traffic right now and tra- traffic right here in the city. I know that we just got an update of what's happening on the 403 and it's kind of messy down there because of the congestion, but, For those of you that uh, that make the commute from up on the mountain till downtown, wherever you may work downtown, uh, each and every day, you know all about traffic congestion, and uh, it's 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 something that's well. As I talk to more and more residents about this, seems to be getting worse and worse. And by worse, I mean log jams. I mean you know people getting late for work. I mean you know taking fifteen twenty minutes to get down the Queen Street Hill or the West Fifth Hill, whatever the case might be. Terry Whitehead is a, a city councillor from up on the mountain who's been concerned about this and vocal about this for quite some time. Uh, we wanted to bring him back on to get an, a bird's-eye view as to exactly what's going on there. Terry, first of all, thanks for the time. I appreciate you joining us today.
2: Great. Uh, great to be with you, Bill, and your listeners. I well, really Terry,
0: I want to listen, because I know that a lot, a lot of the time, obviously you, you've represented the West Mountain for many, many years now, so uh, obviously the, the focus of a lot of the attention is going to be the Queen Street Hill, Becca Drive, whichever way people want to call it. Uh, and, and that's a legitimate problem. I mean, I've, anybody who's been stuck in the traffic there every, any morning or afternoon, for that matter, can attest to that. But I'm getting the sense from an awful lot of the listeners I've heard from the last little while, Terry, that all of the mountain accesses are starting to get this way. Uh, getting down into the city is becoming more and more problematic for just about everybody.
2: Well, I mean, we only have five accesses, for, and you know, the population of the mountain is growing uh, more significantly, and in- and within years, it will be much more significant in the lower city. Over 40,000 people are commuting uh, to the lower city. So you tell me how they get there if when you've got five accesses. Uh, it's all happening within an hour and a half at, a, at a
0: peak hours of the morning. Well, and as we've seen, and I know you've pointed this out, and I know that Councillor Ferguson from Ancaster has pointed this out, uh, there are a lot of people that do the, the commute to actually take the 403 to get down the hill, and then they have to access the city, uh, usually through either uh, Aberdeen or, or Main Street, but if there's a problem on the 403, which happens on a pretty regular basis, or if it's gridlocked, and you'll hear those reports, invariably people turn to those mountain accesses once again, which is really making a bad situation even worse.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it's like if they if, if the 403 sneezes, uh, the, the rest of the mountain gets the pneumonia uh, because of the traffic loads going down the 403. Certainly experienced it in the West Mountain because you have Gulf Lake Road and Garth Street being the two last basic exits off the uh, link, as so well as the 4-3 jams, uh, then everyone starts exiting on those two routes. And those two routes lead them to Queen Street Hill and the West Fifth Hill. Uh, and it impacts West Fifth, it impacts Garth, it impacts Scenic. Uh, significantly to the point where I get complaints that people uh, during those hours can cannot even get out of their driveway to get on the street.
0: So what's causing this? I mean you've been studying this you've talked to your council colleagues about this for years now. Uh before we get to solutions what's what's the cause? I mean obviously the the most elementary pro- approach to this is well there's just more cars than there used to be but that's I don't know if that's the the singular problem here. It's got to be a little more complex than that.
2: Well I think there's multiple variables. I mean uh first of all the 403 hill uh needs to be uh widened to uh to match uh, uh further down. There's not enough lane way there there's been a lot of conversation about doing that. It's just they haven't got there yet. So that's sort of uh, one of the number issues. Right, that, three. by the
0: way, just to interject here, that, that is a provincial responsibility. That's their road. Right. So I know you've had some discussions with the province on that.
2: Both Lloyd Ferguson and I have, yeah. So and there there seem to be uh, a desire to do that within a certain period of time after a certain study was completed. Um, but we don't have any timelines on when uh, they'll address the hill and add those lanes.
0: So that's that's the highway end of things, but let's let's talk about what's going on on city roads. Then. So the
2: other, yeah. So the other variables are, and I want to make it clear: regardless of what happens in Aberdeen, and my comment about Aberdeen and bringing it down to two lanes, I, I said it would exasperate the problem. Doesn't mean we do, we still don't have a problem. We do. Uh, so the issue is, um, you know, for example, why are so many people uh, going to Aldershot or, or, or driving catch sorry to catch a Go Transit or or, or driving? How come they're um, not utilizing uh, the system that's within the Hamilton? We need to understand that. Uh, obviously, there are barriers, and uh, and uh, so it means a lot more people are utilizing their vehicle, the car, as opposed to using our public transit system to access our Go Transit. So we need to look at why uh, that's happening, and again, take hopefully take that load uh, off our road uh, network. But uh, it's pretty clear that um, the accesses we have uh, may have served the, uh, the, the population that we had, um, but I don't think that it was ever anticipated uh, that we wouldn't expand our accesses to meet the growing needs of, uh, of the mountain and beyond.
0: Well, let's let's talk about that because, I mean, we're talking about what's going up on top of the escarpment. And uh, obviously, if it's going down the escarpment, there's there's a bottleneck there, too, that needs to be addressed. But there are some other concerns, too. And this is not news, obviously not news to you. I know you've been dealing with this for quite some time uh, and anybody who's been involved in that. Uh, but the councilors for that area down there, uh, which is Ward One, by the way, uh, and, and this goes back to when Brian McCaddy was on council and, and Aiden Johnson, and now Maureen Wilson is the councilor for that area, uh, telling me that they hear on a pretty regular basis people that are concerned about public safety uh, because of all the cars, which is why they're asking about doing what what some people call road diets, as you say, shrinking this, the number of lanes in there. So how do you how do you how do you balance that, Terry? I mean, public safety is a big concern and it's a legitimate concern. I get that. Uh, but at the same time, there's a concern about you know people that are saying, look at it, you know, we're sitting in traffic here, first of all, from an environmental standpoint, that's not healthy. Uh, and, of course, there's the, the concern and the frustration that's caused as a result of that. How do you balance those two things?
2: Well, well two things is uh, I'll make this very clear, and I'll say it's close so everyone can understand this issue because it's so important. We should be paying spending money on real safety issues, not on perception. And the problem is we're starting to spend money to address Perception of safety versus real safety. So that's the wrong way to go. All right, explain. Mean,
0: no, put. Give me a, a, an explanation of that. What What are the perceived safety issues that you see?
2: Well, I'm going to give you an example. The whole issue in Aberdeen, uh, far from a safety point of view, the major issues were addressed uh, because most of those issues were on the intersections. And so, when I raised the question, "Why are we doing this and going down to one lane?" is about safety. And I said, "No, it's about." I was told that it was about. Uh, perception. People don't want to walk, walk, walk because they have a perception it's not safe. How do you answer that question? I mean, if we're going to start throwing money at things because it's a perception issue and it's not backed up by any metrics, then we got a problem. And so that's the number one issue, is that let's put them money where there's, there's bona fide metrics to do, drive that. And I said this before about Aberdeen. Aberdeen, on, from all that, those metrics, those safety metrics was 427 or thereabouts uh, uh, on, on the priority list. It wasn't number one. It wasn't number two. So but the point I'm making is here's an example where we're spending pretty big bucks and changing things and potentially dramatically impacting uh, uh, the, the traffic flow when it wasn't even a number one
0: issue. So what do you want to see happen? I mean, we- it, 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 to, to uh, use your example, though, let me follow up on that if I could, Terry, because I want the listeners to understand exactly what, what you're talking about here. Is there's a process. There's uh, By staff, there's an evaluation of the work that needs to be done in this city, and, and they rank them, and, and you see that all the time, different reports yeah. from different committees. Uh, this is a high-priority job. It's in the top three or four. This one, not so much. Uh, it's number 600 or whatever the case might be in situations like that. So w- w- does council not follow those rules?
2: No, what happens is is uh it, it and this is back to the the wild wild west uh, uh, this is where things are are not done comprehensively they're done unilaterally and 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 so he got a who comes in with uh, uh her desire uh she champions the issue and you know uh and 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 she has uh this it's more ideologically driven than it is uh, based on real uh, any real metrics. It's really, uh, if you really want to know the truth, it's more about anti-car than it is about safety. And we've got to delve through that, understand uh, that that's, that's what we're dealing with now. We're dealing with an ideology. And when you talk about road diets, it makes sense in some locations. There's greater capacity and so forth. But here's the fundamentals. When you're dealing with peak, and here's the challenge, so I have no problem providing flexibility and looking at a dynamic approach to our traffic issues, but no one can argue that the worst time to be dealing with these issues is during peak hours. So the question is: Can we do both? Can we walk and chew gum? I believe we can, uh, but some believe that we could. We should just make these decisions that lock in uh, a, a, a constraint that is there for twenty-four. 24- seven. And I, I, that's the problem I'm having. Let's understand there's going to be peak hours. Let's help those flows during peak hours. And in the balance of the day, if you want to have a shopping mall on the lanes, go ahead.
0: Talk to me about how information is gathered. I mean, it's been a few years since I've been down at City Hall, and I haven't talked to staff about this, but maybe you could enlighten us about this. Uh, because back in the day, uh, when there was a concern about, uh, a couple of concerns, such as you're articulating right now, uh, staff would go out and they'd do a traffic count. You know, that, you'd know you see that little thing going across the road, and they basically count yep. the number of cars that would go on a road in a given amount of time. And conversely, they would check with uh, with uh, Public Works and obviously with Hamilton Police Services and others about the number of incidents, uh, the collisions, whatever the case might be, that may occur. And, and that way you have data, uh, and you can make an educated decision about what needs to be done or not be done, I guess, in situations like that. Is that process not being followed anymore?
2: Uh, well, they still have track those numbers, and that, but I mean, <laughs> so if you take the same metrics, uh, 18 months ago, you got a report saying, do not reduce Aberdeen. Then you get a new director comes in and they say, yeah, let's reduce uh, uh, the lanes on Aberdeen. So you got two conflicting staff reports within 18 months and nothing's changed. Uh, so it's, uh, when I asked that question, he says, well, they're now looking through this, um, what they call um, zero, uh, code, or what's the terminology, zero, code zero. Uh, um, the whole terminology that uh, with no access will be tolerated the city of Hamilton. Yeah. So they're, they're looking through that uh, that new lens. And, and, and this is the example of, of, of an ideology. So when you, you, you take that kind of approach, you're creating systems uh, that really are more about uh, uh, dealing with... Craig, such constraints uh, that traffic, uh, cars will not be able to move through the city.
0: But when you get a, a report, in, in other words, a contradictory report, such as you've just described, uh, especially in such a short period of time, uh, and, and the new person says, no, I think we should do this. So in, in your case, you're talking about you know shrinking the, the number of lanes on a particular road do you not question them and say, well, wait a second, what about this report? Was this wrong? Because, I mean, ultimately, Terry, you can only vote based on the knowledge and the information and the data that you're given. If somebody else comes along six months later and says, no, I think we should do it this way instead, does that mean the data you had was wrong? Or is this, what's going on here? Like, what's the justification? No,
2: the, 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 data, the data didn't change the philosophy. Uh, so basically what I was told is uh, by the new director um, was that, we had adopted, uh, uh, I guess, basically, I can't remember what the terminology is anymore, but sort of a zero approach to accidents on a road system. Yeah. And by doing that, uh, looking to that lens, it resulted in uh, these changes.
0: So where are you now? Because, I mean, you know, the people that are stuck on the roads every morning uh, on the Queen Street or the West Fifth Hill or whatever the case might be are thinking, you know, what's what's going on here? Is this going to get better or worse?
2: Uh, well, uh, so what we're doing right now is uh, uh, they, we delayed the Queen Street Aberdeen uh, implementation till the spring of next year, uh, and it also buys time in the context of uh, looking at some of the issues, other issues on the mountain. Uh, that's the motions that I hope to bring forward after I have all the information uh, collected. So, we need to look at this comprehensively, and 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 you know we've been focusing a lot on Aberdeen, but I want to make it clear. That we've had it, we were having issues prior to the whole conversation about reducing Aberdeen. Uh, because the traffic is, you know, you try and pull it on Stone Church on any given day in the morning. Uh, it's getting more and more challenging. I got people that live on Stone Church, uh, that had accidents just pulling it out of the driveway because they went from, and here's back to this philosophy, right? So you've got a, what they call a complete street, and it sounds good. You know, well, you've got the bike lane, you've got the, the, the center turning lane and so forth. So it was a two, it was a, a four lane that went down to two lane. The problem is when you've got driveways and, and, and intersections uh, coming onto that street and you don't have any gapping, meaning you've got a high level of traffic, then you're asking those people in those neighborhoods and those people that live on the street in the driveways uh, to compete to get onto the drive, uh, onto the road network. So in the old days, people would pull over from the curb lane to the center lane to allow people to pull out other intersections or out of the uh, driveways. Well, you don't have that opportunity anymore. So what happens now is you've got to wait till there's a window to do so. And if the traffic is so heavy, it, it, it creates a conflict.
0: No, your point's well taken. Oh. I, I, we've got friends that actually, actually a neighbor of mine that goes to Mohawk College, and uh, it's bumper to bumper from Golf Links Road all the way to West 5th on Stone Church every day, not just once in a while, but every morning. It's like that, and and I, I you know, and again, that's a single lane. That's down to two lanes now because of the bike lanes and everything else. And I'm not saying get rid of the bike lanes. I'm just saying we got a problem here, and I don't really see too many people down at City Hall trying to do a whole lot to try to solve it. They're simply just saying, well, that's the new normal. I don't think that's a satisfactory there, answer. There's
2: an example of a road diet, right? That has failed. In, in, in the fact, the conflicts and the accidents have actually gone down. So what people tell the philosophy: we better understand. Uh, that is not necessarily applicable under certain circumstances. And if you have such growth uh, in regards to driving density or uh, congestion or more traffic, then you just took out the capacity on that road network. So how does that solve the problem?
0: Well, clearly it doesn't solve it. It seems to be making it worse. But what I'm looking right. for, and I think what a lot of, of commuters are looking for here, Terry, is, is a solution I know you've been vocal about this uh, I know others have spoken up about this uh, and and just as and again I don't want to put an us versus them spin on this but I mean there's a reality here uh, just as the downtown councilors for years have been suggesting that other councilors on the mountain and some of the outlying areas uh, have to show a little empathy for for the downtown and I think you have uh, in many many ways uh, you also have to have some empathy for the people that live on the mountain?
2: Well, it's a two-way street, and I want to make it clear that the downtown aren't without challenges, uh, and I do sympathize. The reality is, is that they have less local road systems than what appears to be more uh, uh, what I call arterial road systems, which impact neighborhoods. So they have a, a frustrated situation themselves. So I appreciate that. But somewhere we've got to find the solutions where we keep, the traffic on main roads and take them off local roads and then define what the local roads are so that we can have a win-win as best as possible as opposed to almost punishing different areas of the city. That's not a good approach. We need to find a comprehensive approach uh, that addresses the issues. And by the way, there are issues downtown and so I want to make it clear, we need to be working with the downtown councillors and find those solutions that don't ripple up on the mountain either.
0: Well, and you've been around council long enough to know, and I certainly have seen this and continue to see it today, that one of the unintended consequences of this is uh, is when you shrink a road like that. And maybe the best example a lot of people could understand is King Street and in, in downtown Hamilton. Uh, the International Village, right, starting at Wellington Street, uh, it's down to just one lane or two because of all the situation, two lanes. Uh, everybody deeks up Wellington and goes down Hunter, and Hunter's much busier now, and that's a, a, almost a residential neighborhood. Uh, I'm afraid if they do what they're going to do or planning to do here, you're going to see a lot more traffic on those side streets, and that's really you know making their concerns about safety uh, legitimate concerns, because they're the, but they're the ones that are driving the traffic there.
2: Well, and the other challenge is if you really believe in our public transit system, how does this uh, make people take public transit when you jump on a bus and they're caught up in the same
0: traffic loads. Yeah, exactly. Um, Terry, we've got to leave it there for now. So. We're just about out of time now. Uh, we'll continue this, obviously, as, as this goes on, but I'm sure you're going to get a lot of feedback about this conversation today, and hopefully that will spur some action down at City Hall. Thanks for the time today, Terry.
2: Thanks, Bill. Thanks, I
0: appreciate it. Ward 14 Councillor uh, Terry Whitehead uh, from the West Mountain. And uh, listen, I, I now I go to work at 4 o'clock in the morning, so I don't see a whole lot of this. I mean, it's busy even on the 403, even at that time in the morning. But uh, for those that leave uh, and do the commute anytime from about 6.30 until even now, I guess, uh, you know what we're talking about. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Climate change, according to an Ipsos poll, now emerges as one of the top ballot box issues among voters in uh, this uh, election, which of course is going to be on October 21st. Uh, by the way, I should also mention the advance polls are starting this weekend. Uh, so check your uh, voting card. You got, they'll tell you on the back of it uh, where your advance polling location is if you want to do that. But this is interesting because for the longest time in past elections, uh, obviously health care, the economy, those are the big issues that a lot of people are concerned about. And uh, climate change was something that was way down the list, but it's on people's minds now, and I think justifiably so. Uh, And so to that end, uh, we're pleased to welcome back to the city, actually, and back to our program, Catherine McKenna, who is the Environment Minister. Uh, And uh, first of all, thanks. This is home for you. This is really a home visit for you because you Uh, were born and raised here.
3: Absolutely, Bill. It's always great to be back. Actually, your studio is just down the road from my parents' house where they've lived for over 50 years. And St. Mary's High School is around the corner we went to high school.
0: Still, still the same place, uh, and you don't get back here as often as you could, as as you'd like to, obviously, because this gets you busy. I, I was going to say right are around the country, but I mean you've attended international festivals and and a number of different things right now. But uh, uh, we're in campaign mode right now, and this is I, I think it's a burning issue. I mean you're mm-hmm. always going to have the economy as, as a number one issue, and, and health care, which I don't think got as much attention as it should have at the debate. But that's that's, that's the bad on the uh, on the moderators, not on the uh, the contestants involved in this thing. But let's talk about this. Are you surprised by the way? that it's, it's risen to, to the height of, of awareness that it seems to have done in this election campaign?
3: You know, Bill, I'm really happy about that. Uh, I think it's really important that we have a serious conversation about climate change. It's not just an environment issue. It's an economic issue that every time we see extreme heat, people dying, or we see flooding where people are losing their homes, uh, or we see wildfires where literally the West is is burning, um, there's huge impacts, including on the economy. And I think people have realized this because they've seen the impacts over time, um, whether you know, it's, it's extreme weather here, really, really hot. Which is dangerous for seniors. Um, Impacts on we're seeing invasive species, um, ticks, and Lyme disease going up here. And I I love coming back to Hamilton, and of course, I love um, Lake Ontario and and the harbor front. I mean, we're now seeing invasive species, like fish, that are coming up, um, which is a result to warming waters um, and and other impacts of climate change. That's having
0: an impact on Coots Paradise. Yeah, we it's we talked a to real the Bay Area Restoration Committee yeah. folks a couple of weeks ago about this, and this is, this is a real threat to the ecosystem here.
3: It's a real threat to the ecosystem. Um, in fact, today we just made a great announcement. Uh, I was with uh, local candidates here from uh, from Bruno Eugenti, Jasper Kujawski. Um, I was also with Karina Gould. Um, unfortunately, Philomena Tassi's mother is very sick, so she wasn't able to be there. And, of course, Bob Rutina and Sheila Copps. And we were talking about how if we're reelected. We will work on creating, uh, uh, protecting Coote's, uh, not just Coots Paradise, but all the way um, uh, to the escarpment. And this is a huge opportunity because it is being impacted by climate change. And I look at what Sheila did, and it was amazing to have Sheila Cops back, reminding people that these ridings uh, used to be liberal. Uh, Stan Keyes, also here in, mm-hmm. in uh in Hamilton Center and it made a real <clears throat> difference to people's lives here. Um, the cleaning up of the harbor would not have happened uh, if it wasn't for Sheila Copps. And then when we got conservatives, they stopped the progress. So p- elections really matter. And getting back to your point about climate change, let's be clear. So a couple things which I think is important for your viewers to know. Um, their climate scientists and economists have rated all the climate pa- plans. And, you know, people are saying, well, what about NDP and Greens versus Liberal? We are, are the only party that gets that has an ambitious climate plan, but is also achievable. And that's all we do every single day, look at how do we tackle climate change, but also in very, you know, practical ways, whether uh, it's investing in renewable energies or uh, electric buses, um, working with the city right here um, in a new uh, climate uh, climate center. There are all these things we need to be doing, but Andrew Scheer has said the first thing he would do is tear up our climate plan. That's bad for the environment. That's bad for the economy. And most of all, it's abandoning all those young people who are marching in the streets and demanding a cleaner and more sustainable future.
0: One of the points that uh, that Mr. Scheer made uh, in the debate on Monday night uh, was the the, the program that the federal government, that your government has put in place over the last little while, is not working. It says it has not been effective. It wasn't effective in British Columbia, and it's not effective here. Uh, it's it's not reducing carbon limits. Uh, we still have are one of the worst c- contributors to carbon in, in the world, uh, and it's it's not the net zero thing. Now, of course, we already know about the ads that Doug Ford's been running here with, uh, with half truths about you know they don't even talk about the rebate program, only about the cost and the stickers on the gas pumps, et cetera. There's a lot of misinformation, and I, frankly, a lot of people are confused. They don't know which wh- who to believe or which way to turn.
3: Uh, so, I mean, I think it's really simple um, that uh, what we've seen is conservative politicians, this generation, Brian Mulroney, cared about the environment. Um, he took action uh, to protect the environment. He used a price on pollution to tackle acid rain. We don't worry about our lakes, our rivers and streams dying now. Um, that conservative politicians do not understand uh, the seriousness of climate change. Brian Mulroney they don't was have really an anomaly there. He was a, he's, he, he's still
0: considered to be the most environmentally friendly prime minister to date uh, because of some of the initiatives. And, and to your point, carbon pricing is actually a conservative idea. This was a conservative think tank that, that developed this sort of thing.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, the, I don't know what to say about conservative politicians. I think it's unconscionable that they are l- literally lying uh, about our climate plan. Um, And they know a price on pollution does work. So it's complete hogwash what they're saying, but it's very risky. And this election, elections matter. Let's talk about what happened when we got Doug Ford here. First thing he did was make it free to pollute, but he also canceled programs that were helping cities, schools, hospitals, businesses, people save money. That hurt Hamilton. They canceled an electric bus pilot program. They uh, canceled um, investments in energy efficient, affordable housing, Mohawk College, their climate center, they canceled funding to that. That hurts people. But it also, it's not a plan for the future. And so I really think this election is extremely important. So I'm talking to folks in Hamilton. I know you're practical people. I'm a very practical person. That if you care about the environment, if you care about continuing climate action, then you need to seriously consider your options. Because on the one hand, you've got us that has an ambitious plan. We're working with cities and businesses and individuals to tackle climate change. We've created a million jobs, lowest unemployment rate in four decades. Or you, if you vote for a party, including a party that has no chance of forming government like the NDP or the Greens, you could elect, you could elect Andrew Scheer, who will tear up Absolutely everything we've done he also we've said also that we would um, tackle gun violence that we would ban uh, military assault weapons that we allow cities uh, to ban handguns he, there would be more guns under Andrew Shear, and also we are coming back with debates on abortion and you know whether you know Andrew shear it's not at all clear that he supports the lgbtq plus community he won't march in a pride parade he won 't march supporting young climate activists. And that is what is at stake in this election. And if you look at what liberals have delivered, our liberal government has delivered for uh, Hamilton, When we renegotiated NAFTA and Krista Freeland was incredible, I was also involved, everyone in cabinet was involved, we had the interests of Hamiltonians, especially Steelworks at heart. We invested $50 million to modernize Stelco to make the facilities more sustainable. We've invested $5.5 million in the Hamilton Port Authority to increase capacity and move Canadian goods to markets efficiently we've invested in the environment here. Look at Randall Reef, we're cleaning that up. That is what is at stake. And so I just encourage Hamiltonians to really think seriously about the choice. Do they really want to move forward, um, tackling climate change, growing the economy, making sure that we're supporting investments in Hamilton that make a real difference? Or do they want to go back to Doug Ford um, and his dance partner in Ottawa, which would be Andrew Scheer?
0: I'm just looking at the this poll again, and this just came out today, and I'm sure you've had a chance to have a look at it. Uh, On the environmental issue, as we mentioned, it's, it's now one of the top three issues. Uh, And and, uh, the second question here is which political party is best equipped to be able to implement these policies? Uh, As you might expect, the Green Party, uh, by this popular vote, was that. But uh, by the same token, critics have said that the Green Party platform, environmental platform, is too costly and and not practical. So, I mean, you have to balance that out. Uh, The NDP actually finished third, uh, uh, and then the Conservatives, about implementing policies. And again, for that same reason. Uh, There is analysis out here about everybody's climate policies and environmental policies. Uh, you know, I don't go by what's in the brochures. Go online, you know, check with these things and, and do the homework on this. I mean, if we've, uh, as, as a community, I think, uh, finally come to the conclusion that this is one of the top three priorities for this country in this election, I, we as voters have a, a, an obligation, really, to do our homework on this and say, okay, what's the best way to go here? Don't listen to what the other people are saying. Find out for yourself.
3: And look at the facts. I mean, we are the first government in uh, to have a national climate plan that we have done more, and this is experts saying this in the last four years than any other government has done, like anywhere because we all we inherited stephen harper's No non-action on climate change. And Andrew shared, by the way, his climate plan is developed by oil lobbyists in secret meetings. And that isn't the future we want. And that's why all the investments we're making, historic investments in public transportation, in making electric vehicles an incentive. You can look at an electric vehicle and get a $5,000 incentive. We're banning single-use plastics. I know if you talk to kids, that is one of the biggest things. They can't believe that we have so much single-use plastics. It's ending up in our lakes, our rivers, uh, um, our oceans. Um, yes, we're putting a price on pollution, but we're giving the money back to people through the tax system because, at the end of the day, you have to have a, an ambitious climate plan, but it has to be practical and people have to be at the heart of it. When I talk to uh, Hamiltonians, They care about climate change, but of course they care about jobs and paying the bills. And that's what we've been able to do. Ambitious climate plan, lowest unemployment rate in four decades. We've raised a million uh, Canadians out of poverty, 300,000 children for a Canada child benefit. We need to continue this. We cannot go back in time. And that's really what's at stake in this election. Do you want to continue to move forward in progress that's helping families? Or do you want to go back to the Stephen Harper days where there's no plan for the environment, no plan for the economy?
0: I want you to address an issue that comes up time and time again when we talk about climate change and, and environmental plans, and one party versus the other, et cetera. And and there are those that, that support, as you say, the, the third and fourth-line parties here, the Greens and the NDP, and suggest that these plans are practical, even though uh, the experts say they aren't. But the biggest criticism is, and, and I know you've heard this as as, as the Environment Minister, uh, I know you heard it when you were at that conference in Poland last, uh, last winter about this too. Is that it's it? How can the Canadian government say that they're environmentally friendly and at the same time support pipelines? And they they see that as as contradictory.
3: So I think this is a really important point, um, because people do say that. Well, I don't understand. The reality, we are in a transition. 95% or more of people outside, if I go outside the city in Hamilton, are still driving cars that use gas. The transition is not going to happen overnight. And we have said no to Northern Gateway Pipeline. But yes, we did approve the twinning of an existing pipeline, because to not do that would have hurt workers and our economy and would have done nothing to get people out of their cars. There's still the demand. What are we doing to deal with demand? We're putting a price on pollution. We're investing in electric vehicles, in public transportation, in clean fuel standards. And this is what I've realized in four years. I'm the second longest serving environment minister, that you need to work hard every day, talking like a real person, but also acting with people's interests at heart. When we approved the pipeline, we also said the all of that money needed to go to the clean transition every single dollar it was also in light of Rachel Notley you may remember her she was an NDP premier in Alberta who did very she was very courageous sadly we've lost her now to be Jason Kenney who's a he's wed. he's like hand in hand with oil lobbyists but she put a price on pollution she phased out coal and she put a hard cap on emissions in the oil sands so that's how a pipeline fits in it there's a hard cap and i know that's hard for folks but transitions don't happen overnight, and you need to figure this out. And the most important thing we need to do is not elect a government who's beholden to oil lobbyists, who would make pollution-free, who will rip up our climate plan, and who won't continue to move forward. And I know lots of people care about the environment. I work every day. That's all I think about every single day. I have three kids. But what we've done, we have an ambitious plan. We've also committed to net zero emissions by 2050. That is the science. But we're doing the hard work to get there. There's no magic wand in this. You just have to work every day with businesses, with schools, with hospitals, with cities, with people to help them save money, to help them be energy efficient, to help them make better choices. And, of course, to make sure that we are moving forward on climate change, both here and also I push extremely hard internationally. We're able to get the rules to make sure every country has to report transparently, has to meet their commitments but we need to move forward, folks. That's my message. Uh, we can't go. You elect Andrew Scheer. If we elect Andrew Scheer, uh, we're going back in time, and we're going to lose everything. I,
0: I, I, by the way, I support the pipeline, always have, and I I, I don't see that as a conflict, uh, because I think your point's well taken. We're not ready yet. I know there's some people that are going to say, we should be going electric when it comes to vehicles. We're not there yet. Uh, Canada has, you know, a lot of space here. We travel an awful lot in the city. Uh, and by the way, uh, and, and the Tesla folks have found this out the hard way, too. Uh, electric cars don't work as well in the cold climates as they do in southern california where they test them a lot so there's a lot of work that still has to be yeah, done yeah and
3: it, but look i think we're making the advances they are
0: but we're not there yet no
3: we're not and we're not there yet like we've said and actually i think the ndp uh, also supports this we need to have 100% electric vehicles by 2040 We're in 2019. Like This isn't happening overnight. And we were the only party in the last election who said we were going to make historic investments in public transportation, in green infrastructure, in energy efficient, affordable housing. Every other party, including the NDP, was going to balance the budget. That was their focus. If we hadn't done this, we wouldn't be on track to tackle climate change because you need to make these historic investments. Historic investments to get people around in public transit. Historic investments um, to help support the innovators, the entrepreneurs that are providing the solutions. I see inventors here in Hamilton that are creating good jobs and working on really important innovations.
0: Well, you know that right across the road here, the McMaster Innovation Park, they're doing that kind of research and technology. It is it amazing. Last, uh, and
3: I, I got to give a huge shout out. I've done a, a lot of things about both McMaster and Mohawk College. A shout out to the young people, the researchers, the scientists, uh, the entrepreneurs that are out there making a big difference.
0: Uh, lots more to talk about. Uh, hopefully we can uh, pop in again and, and see you in the next I am always
3: while. happy to come talk to you, Bill.
0: Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Good to see you again.
3: Thanks very much. That's,
0: uh, of course, uh, Environment Minister Catherine McKenna, who's in town today. The Bill Kelly
2: Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.